Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues and spoke to me saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with twelve gates, and at the gates twelve angels, and on the gates the names of the twelve tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed. On the east three gates, on the north three gates, on the south three gates, and on the west three gates. And the wall of the city had twelve foundations, and on them were the twelve names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. And the one who spoke with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city and its gates and walls. The city lies foursquare, its length the same as its width. And he measured the city with his rod, 12,000 stadia. Its length and width and height are equal. He also measured its wall, 144 cubits by human measurement, which is also an angel's measurement. The wall was built of jasper, while the city was pure gold, like clear glass. The foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with every kind of jewel. The first was jasper, the second sapphire, the third agate, the fourth emerald, the fifth onyx, the sixth carnelian, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth chrysoprase, I think that's right, the eleventh jacinth, and the twelfth amethyst. And the twelve gates were twelve pearls, each of the gates made of a single pearl, and the street of the city was pure gold, like transparent glass. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb." By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, and its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations. But nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. This is God's word. Now, this Advent season, we were looking at the second coming of Christ, anticipating that, the second Advent of Christ. And uh, we're looking at the last two chapters of the Bible, these last two chapters of Revelation, and exploring God's promise to make all things new. Last week, we learned that all good things from this world will be in the next only better. And all bad things from this world will never make it into the next. So in other words, we will enjoy God and all his gifts, and we will not have to deal with sin or any of its effects. That's our future in Christ. Today we're looking at the vision of the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down from heaven. Now I wonder if you remember, I gave you two rules of interpretation for these these chapters of Revelation. I wonder if you remember that. Does anybody remember what the genre of, of this book is? 
Okay, apocalyptic prophecy, yeah, apocalyptic prophecy. And, which means that there are symbols, there are images, there are these, these vivid things that we are allowed to see and imagine. Now, they're symbolic, but they're truthful. They're telling us something about this new world that is to come. What was the second rule? Do you remember? Anybody remember? I remember. Okay, it's the conclusion of all the themes of the Bible. Thank you. It's, we have to see these chapters as not just isolated pictures of the world to come, but they're actually drawing on all these themes on Ezekiel and, and on the, the temple in the Old Testament and what Jesus has already said. And now all these things are coming together to give us this, this full hope of what God is about to do for us. So let's apply these rules. Let's see it as symbolic and in need of interpretation and yet communicating specific truths. And let's see it in the context of the whole Bible. Okay, I want us to look at the New Jerusalem in three ways. First, I want us to see the obvious that it is a city. It's a city. Secondly, let's consider that this city is as beautiful as a bride on her wedding day. And finally, Let's look at this city as glorious as a temple. Okay, verses 9 and 10. The angel says, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And then he shows John Jerusalem, a city, coming down from heaven. Now, because we're dealing with apocalyptic imagery, we don't have to necessarily be confused with various metaphors and images being, being put together. That's just how this genre works. You just draw from all these various images, you mix and match them, and you get to these glorious truths. So here the angel says, let me show you the bride, and then he shows him the city. And the city tells us something about the bride. It tells us something about the people of God. Now clearly the bride is the church, it's God's people. But then it's compared to the city, and so we are, are given an understanding of God's people in eternity through a, an urban vision. Now, let's, let's not miss the obvious here. It is a city. It's a city. While the original home of humanity was a garden, the restored home of humanity is a city. We started in the garden but we will end up in the new city. Now listen to one commentator. He says, this is Richard Milton, he says, paradoxically, in Revelation, the holy city is also described as the bride of the Lamb. The new Jerusalem is thus equivalent to God's people. This complex image suggests the redemption of humanity in its socio-cultural, even urban character. God redeems not human abstractions, but rather people in their inextricably communal and cultural realities. Now pay attention. He's saying God redeems not human abstractions, but rather people in their inextricably communal and cultural realities. Now, many people in the world, and even in the church, believe that the hope for humanity lies in our return to nature, our return to the garden. 
our reconnection with the natural order, even our submission to it, our refusal to meddle with it, and our submission to nature. But that's not a biblical idea. As much as it may appeal to some of us, it's not a biblical idea. It's probably the influence of the Romantic poets or Rousseau or somebody like that that tells us that nature is guiltless, nature is sinless, and if we just return to the garden and shed our clothes, everything would be fine. That's not how it works. In Revelation 21 and 22, this garden nature imagery is absorbed and then reshaped into a vision of a city. Now, don't worry. All the things about the garden that are good will be in the city. You're not going to miss out on anything, and we'll talk about it next week in more detail. But it's not going to be a garden. It's going to be a city. In Genesis 2, we read that God put Adam in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. He was to rule over nature and to cultivate it. And in Revelation 21, in our passage, in this very passage, we see a city, which is the inevitable result of working and keeping the garden. Now, some of you over the pandemic time, started gardens. I wonder how, you, how you're doing now, but two years after. But if you start a garden, you rarely stop at the garden. You start planting, and then you realize you need a tractor. Then you realize you need to pave a road to get the tractor to the garden. Then you realize, well, there's not a store nearby. Maybe I can start a, a, home, a, a garden supply store so I can get all my all my stuff, and then you have all this stuff that your garden produces, and he says, well, maybe we'll do farm-to-table restaurant. And then you end up with a city. (laughs) This is how we're made. God never intended for us to stay in the garden. You see, he called us to expand it, to cultivate it, to bring God's rule and God's presence into all of his creation. Look at the description of this new city. It's made of gold and precious stones. Now, we see gold and precious stones mentioned in Genesis 2, 11 and 12. It's already there. But these, these materials are present in their natural state in the garden. But in the new city, they have been cultivated and made part of the city's architecture. This is the vision of nature under the rule of humanity. In God's design, the garden becomes a city. There were originally two people in the garden, but they were commanded to be fruitful and to multiply, to fill the earth and to subdue it. A couple then became a family. Family became a tribe. A tribe became a nation. And now in Revelation 21, verses 24 and 26, we see the nations gathering in the new Jerusalem. And they are bringing the glory and the honor of the nations into God's holy city. That's the vision. That's what John sees. He sees a new city that comes down from heaven, and then the nations gather around it, and they bring stuff into the city. What are they bringing? The honor and the glory of the nations. Or Isaiah tells us the wealth of the nations is brought into the city. 
Whatever is good in any nation, whatever is good in any culture will remain in eternity. Now, I'm going to speculate here just a little bit, but I imagine that it includes beautiful art and technological innovations and organizational achievements. And that in God's renewed creation, all these things that we are wired to do, we will bring to God in that city. And we will worship Him with our work. Now, to put it differently, in the new creation, God will ensure the flourishing of the human community in all its cultural and social complexity. The vision of our eternal state, our eternal home, involves lots of people living in perfect harmony and cultivating God's beautiful creation, ruling over it and offering our accomplishments in worship to our God. Now, yes, salvation is personal. Of course it is. God saves individual people. He does. And you can be saved today. But his vision is much bigger than your salvation. His vision is the salvation of humanity, of creation. It's restoring and renewing and redeeming and setting it right and yet even continuing to expand it. These are ideas that need to be thought about and need to be imagined and need to be wondered at. But this is the kind of stuff that makes me excited about what's to come. Things we do here that are meaningful, that are good, that are God-given, they're not going to just disappear. You're not wasting your time working here doing beautiful things, relating to other human beings. That's not a waste. That's going to continue, except when it continues, you won't have any sinful influence on any of that. And so every act of work, every accomplishment, instead of being an idolatrous act of rebellion against God, I will build my own life, will become an act of worship, act of submission to His will, act of extending his creation further and being his representative made in his image in the new world. I, that makes me so excited to think about that. It makes my life now meaningful. Yes, this beautiful thing is to come, but what I'm doing now is meaningful because God made me this way. We're already building this city, and yet it is yet to come. I wonder if you know the name Frederick Law Olmsted. He's widely regarded as the father of modern landscape architecture. I don't expect anybody knowing that name necessarily, but he's actually a really important historical figure. In the 1800s, he's, he's the person that's responsible for, for starting this, this, this whole idea of, of a city park. So he's the guy that designed Central Park in New York. Uh, many other parks all over the nation, uh, several parks in Chicago, for example. He's the guy that also lobbied uh, for what has now become the uh, Yosemite State Park. It was, now just, was then just wilderness that needed to be protected. So he lobbied for that. He lobbied for, for the preservation of Niagara Falls. He was the guy that, that saw the potential of harnessing what God gave us, the nature, and using it for the good of people. 
he knew that only wealthy people could have their own parks. So he said, what if we made parks in cities, in the center of the city where you can go and enjoy what God has made and have that available to everybody and lay it out in the way that makes sense for human beings. Famous Chicago architect Daniel Burnham said of Olmsted, he said, he paints with lakes and wooded slopes, with lawns and banks and forest-covered hills, with mountainsides and ocean views. Beautiful way to describe someone's work. The means that I'm using are landscapes and wooded hills and rivers, the beautiful things that God gave us, but he is using them and he's painting with them. He's creating things with these natural elements. Olmsted preserved and cultivated the beauty of God's natural world and he made it useful for human flourishing. Even now, almost in every city in the States, people enjoy his ideas and often his actual work that he put into the, the city planning of that particular city. And that contributes to human flourishing, contributes to... One of the incentives for me to move to St. Louis was Forest Park. There's no question, Forest Park is a beautiful place in the middle of a city, a refuge, a place of human flourishing. I wonder if this in some way speaks to what we will be doing in eternity expanding, landscaping, taking God's things and making them into things that are promoting human flourishing. I am quite excited about, about that. Now, this is a city, obvious thing. It's a city as beautiful as a bride. Now, let's not be concerned whether it's a city or a bride. Are they together? Where is, I mean, th there's lots of confusion that we can get into if we take these things too literally. But the image of a bride is very important. The city is also a bride in John's vision, and the angel with the seven bowls who invited John to see the judgment of, of the great prostitute in, in, in Revelation 17 now is inviting John to see the beauty of the bride of the Lamb. And this contrast is, is very important. Humanity here is presented as consisting of two groups. The first is the great prostitute, the city of Babylon, rebellious and under the rule of God's enemy. The second is the bride of the Lamb, the city of Jerusalem, where God is enthroned. Now, what's the difference? That's the contrast. Babylon, Jerusalem, the great prostitute, the bride of the Lamb, the devil, God. What's the difference? The first city is an earthly city, and the second is a heavenly city. The first city, Babylon, tries to make herself feel beautiful by offering herself to her lovers who use and abandon her. The other one, Jerusalem, is made beautiful by the love of the Lamb. Verse 10 tells us that the new Jerusalem comes out of heaven from God. This is important. The imagery is that this city comes from God, that God presents it in the new world, that God brings it down. It's not a result of human effort, but it's a result of God's grace. 
God beautifies her. God beautifies this city. God lays the city out as he wants with his dimensions, the angel measuring with angelic measurements. Came across a news story a few days ago. <clears throat> the headline read, Saudi camel beauty pageant cracks down on cosmetic enhancements. <clears throat> Naturally, I was interested. <clears throat> I kept reading, and I read that more than 40 camels this year, this is just this year, have been disqualified from Saudi Arabia's beauty pageant for receiving Botox injections and other cosmetic enhancements. This is serious business. You, you laugh, but there is thousands of people come to that and present their camels for competition. And apparently, in pursuit of such prized attributes as long, droopy lips, a big nose, and a shapely hump, this is all straight from the story, I'm not making it up, <laughs> many owners resort to cheating. Botox, I already mentioned, there's rubber bands that are placed strategically to, uh, uh, to restrict blood flow, to enhance certain parts of the camel. I'm no camel, but <clears throat> I can certainly identify with trying to impress others, trying to present myself as better, smarter, more beautiful to others. Every human being essentially lives their life trying to make themselves beautiful. But God, God offers the kind of beauty that cannot be manufactured by us. This kind of beauty lasts forever because it is rooted not in what we make of ourselves, but of what God makes of us. Now we're dealing here with wedding imagery. Wedding imagery, there's the bride. The bride and the groom is this meeting, this wedding feast, wedding ceremony, wedding party, where the bride and the groom are finally together. Now I've been to many weddings and officiated some of them myself, so I get the best view in the house typically when the bride comes in. I have never seen an ugly bride. Have you? It doesn't matter what the bride looks like. She is always stunningly, breathtakingly beautiful. Always. Why is that? Why is that? Why is that we have to stand when she enters the room? And if you don't, somebody will tell you to get up. <laughs> Why is it that I typically tell the groom, don't lock your knees, right? Because you may faint. You know, it's one of those tricks where you lock your knees, blood doesn't flow as well, and then you're faced with this beauty of vision and you just fall down. <laughs> Why is that, that every bride is like that? Well, it's the occasion, it's, it's the wedding, it's, it's the, the promise of this happy life, it's the, the beauty of the love between the bride and the groom, it's the choice of the groom to stake his life on this one relationship. It's, it's the beauty of the intimacy that is to come. All of that makes the bride unmistakably, stunningly beautiful. The wedding is an expression of that. So there's no ugly brides. And that's why when we appear before the Lord, we will be stunningly 
breathtakingly beautiful in his eyes. Now, when you look at this text, and there's this, this mixed metaphors of the city and the bride, but the city is made beautiful. There's gold and pearls and jewels in the city. But all this beauty is based in the love of the Lamb. It's his bride. Chosen before the foundation of the world, he has, lo- he has loved us from eternity. Purified by his own blood, he bought us, gave his life for us. Dressed in the white robes of his own righteousness and given his own glory forever. And so we are a beautiful bride. Now if you ask me what beauty is, I will quite simply begin describing my wife. If you ask Jesus the same question, I think he might just describe you. He might just think of you as the beauty of the bride. As God sees you through the lens of his steadfast love for you, he thinks you are stunningly beautiful. And that's the image. This is the world to come. This is the world to come. Humanity finally made perfectly beautiful with full acceptance by God, with the deepest of intimacies with him, with the best, the most hopeful future with him. This is what awaits us in the new city. And finally, lastly, it's a city as glorious as a temple. Here we need to consider the dimensions of the city. Now, a couple of you are very excited to get your calculators out, to start drawing, to start figuring out what is it actually going to look like. We need to pay attention to this, but I think this is symbolically telling us something very important. Look at verse 16. The city lies four square, its length the same as its width, and he measured the city with his rod, 12,000 stadia, its length and width and height are equal. So it's a perfect cube. This is the point. It's a perfect cube. Now, if you're a reader of the Bible, as John is, as we are, you will immediately go to another place in the Bible that describes another cube. There's only one other cube in Scripture, and that is the inner sanctuary of the temple. Shape-wise, dimensions-wise, it takes us to the temple. And of course, later it tells us there is no temple. There is no temple because it is a temple. The entire city, one commentator says, the entire city is laid out as a temple because its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. The temple is not an isolated building within the city, but the entire city is the temple and dwelling place of God. Now, what is a temple? What is the temple in Jerusalem? What did it do? It's a place of meeting. It's a place of connection with God. It's a place of atonement. It's a place of God's presence. It's a place of reconciliation. This is where God meets with his people in that inner sanctuary, in the Holy of Holies. This is as close as you could get to God. But now we are told there is no temple because it is a temple and because the temple is God himself and 
the Lamb. In other words, God's presence is extended from one location to the whole new creation. God now becomes everywhere, not just because He is everywhere, but because He is present everywhere with His people for worship, for relationship, for connection. How is that possible? Well, the answer is the Lamb. The Lamb. As you read this, if you read this passage, you will see how the author here is repeating the Lamb over and over again. He's telling us, this is about the Lamb. You can't understand this passage unless you see what the Lamb has done. You have to see how the Lamb fits in the city. You need to see the relationship of the Lamb with the temple. Of course, the Lamb is Jesus. And in John 2, when Jesus was asked by some people for proof of of his identity, of his mission, for a sign to tell people he is what he says he is, he answered them, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. And then they said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples, including John, who's writing this book, remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. The Lamb has become the temple. The Lamb has become the bridegroom who gave his life for his bride. It is all about relationship to and with the Lamb. So I will end the sermon the way our passage ends in verse 27. Nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable, detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. So I will ask you, is your name written in the Lamb's book of life? Are you his bride, made beautiful by his grace, purified by his blood, dressed in the robes of his righteousness, sharing his glory? Are you part of his new creation, part of this new city that will extend and expand God's creative energy all over the world? Are you going to be in that city?